last episode of season two. No, usually hide like the name of the artist we're introing until the end and all that, just like part of the reveal and blah, blah, blah. Tonight we're going to cover Billie Holiday. I'm just going to throw this out here as a warning instead. Her life was painful and involves a lot of drug use and, <laughs> well, much worse. So, trigger warning for racism, alcohol use, drug use, spousal abuse, and all the other nefarious things that go on in her existence. Thank you for tuning in tonight, and I didn't mean to lower the uh, mood before we got started, but I'm Pat. I'm Ian. Thank you for listening to Do Check Out the Song. Thank you for that hot take on the intro there, Pat. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, it's with what's going on right now, I didn't want to... I didn't want this to come out of nowhere for anybody who was listening, because I know this is about music history, but half her life ends up not being about music at all, and we're going to have, you know, a f- some conversations about some stuff that's a little, even though we are an adult podcast, it's still worth, like, warning people about. All right, and so let's get right into it then. So Billie Holiday was born Eleanor Fagan on April 7th, 1915. Now, her first name is spelled E-L-I-N-O-R-E. She has another spelling that she also went by, spelled E-L-E-A-N-O-R-A. Now, some controversy on how it's actually spelled or if this was just her preferred spelling. There's some muddiness, you know, in her early life for sure. But she was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to teenage unmarried parents Sarah, Julia, Sadie, Fagan, and Clarence Holiday. Is it Clarence Holiday? Clarence Holiday. Some sources say her birthplace was Baltimore, and even supposedly her birth certificate says Eleanor Harris, but, you know, once again, all the muddiness, and there's going to be lots of muddiness all over this episode, too. Yeah, because they really kept great records back then, but the records really uh, only lasted about 10 years before they became really shitty. (laughs) (laughs) Or just lost somewhere in a pile. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of, like, purposeful loss and things like that, and so... I don't know. Every time we really reach back into the 30s and 40s and look for like birth certificates and like true information that the state is supposed to keep, I don't think I've ever actually found what I was looking for. Right. I mean, it's there's just boxes and boxes of it. I mean, if you really want to search for it, you better spend weeks on it. Yeah. <laughs> or at least enough money to go down to the municipal hall and get enough permits to find out <laughs> what you're looking for. But even though she was born Eleanor Fagan, I'm just going to call her Billy for the rest of the episode as to not be confusing really yeah thank god i mean uh, although eleanor fagan is a pretty badass name it really is we're we'll, we'll stick to the uh the billy holiday for all of this well so not long after billy's birth her father clarence holiday abandoned the family to pursue a career as a jazz banjo and guitar player and he even played for fletcher henderson's band i have no idea who that is but is that like a big thing uh, I don't really know, but they got some pretty kick-ass songs if you go on and look. All right, well, we're gonna, we'll throw some on the Dude Check Out This Song playlist for us. Yeah, but know. there's no Dude Check Out This Song because we don't really want to celebrate someone abandoning their family. Yeah, it's not, not so great. And so Billy and her mother ended up using her maternal grandfather's name, Fagan. And so this is where the controversy comes in. Was her last name actually Holiday or was it Fagan? Who really knows? Who really cares? My biography cares, okay? Okay, sorry, Ian. My feeling is hurt. In 1920, her mother married a man with the surname Go, G-O-U-G-H. Like Van Gogh, but yeah, without the van. And eventually, Billy would end up adopting this name, too. 
None of these ever legally changed, so, you know, she just took the name. Eleanor Go or Billy Go is all Billy Go. She can't <laughs> go by Billy Go. <laughs> well, she was still going by Eleanor, so. <laughs> and I do got to say, at some point, they do end up moving to Baltimore. I assume it's around this marriage, but the details were sketchy at best. So, at this point, she's living in Baltimore, just to get that in there. What year are we at now, and how old is she, just to clarify everything? It's 1920, so she's about five. Yeah, so it's really still early life, early development. Yeah, and because her mother worked as a maid on passenger railroads, Billy was raised by her half-sister's mother-in-law, Martha Miller. Half-sister's mother-in-law. So, her half-sister's father's wife. (laughs) 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 I I had to think that one through. (laughs) Well, so some stranger. Yeah, essentially. And Billy frequently skipped school and was often brought before the juvenile court. Just didn't want to go. Probably didn't see the the value in it, really, you know? And by the age of 11, she would have just dropped out of school totally. Yeah, I'm, I mean, especially in this era, that actually happens so much more. And in 1926, she would end up fighting off a rape attempt. And she was held in protective custody until the age of 12 in 1927. What the fuck? And how old is she now? 12. Holy fuck. Well, I mean, this is already, like, I know I threw, like, the the warning out, but me and Ian still managed to keep a very high level of I don't really know most of the details, so please don't mind if I take a moment to throw out a, what the fuck? Yeah. Maybe this has to do with her dropping out of school, too. Like, I don't but know. But protective cut, I don't know. Okay. That's, there's that, something that, going on there, right? Yeah, like that's all. <laughs> that whole set of circumstances is very awkward and shady, and uh, it, it's very, very weird. And so, sometime around this point, she would end up moving back to New York. Again, muddy details. So, she ends up in Harlem. You know. Yeah. Well, especially after this, I wouldn't be surprised that the details are muddy. The this is where the court should have made the details muddy because nobody should really know where she's moving at this point. Well. Around the age of 14, being in, in Harlem and probably needing some money for herself, she starts prostituting. Oh, my God. Why? No, this is making it worse. Yeah, and she does that for a while, but at one point she ends up getting arrested for prostitution and ends up in jail with her mother, who was also in jail for prostitution. <laughs> at the same time? At the same time. Holy fuck. I, I want to think somewhere in my brain that there is some ironic humor there, but I just can't find that funny. Like, that's just, that is just damn sad. Like, God. When you start to wonder where she was able to de- delve for some of the pain for some of the songs that she makes later, but now right. it's, uh, they, it's starting to make a lot more sense. Oh, it'll make even more sense later, too. But because of this, and I imagine seeing her mother in jail for the same thing, you know, convinced her to start rethinking her life. This is when she ended up starting to sing, and she would start to sing in Harlem nightclubs, and this is around 1930. And now that she's singing, she decided to change her name once again, but this time she gave herself, you know, basically her stage name. She chose her first name, Billy, after her favorite movie actress, Billy Dove. If you don't know who Billy Dove was, she was an actress who became one of the more popular actresses. In the 1920s, she did films like The Black Pirate, the Painted Angel, and The American Beauty. You know, just to name, like, some of her biggest movies. Wow. I That's awesome. 
And, you know, obviously, she chose her last name after her father, Clarence Holiday. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It still is just such a great name, like Billy Holiday. It really is like... It's a great stage name. It's like 50% actress, 50% gunslinger. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. So by the age of 18, she finally got discovered performing in a Harlem jazz club by a man named John Hammond. And John Hammond was key to getting her into the studio and recording. And she would end up working with up-and-coming clarinetist and band leader Benny Goodman. And Betty Goodman wrote, like, a bunch of hit singles, like, big band-type stuff, like, before World War II, you know, when the big band stuff was really popular. So he was already old guard in the industry then. No, he was up and coming at this point. Oh, he, he was up and coming? Okay. Yeah. And with Goodman, she would end up singing over the stuff he wrote, including her first commercial releases, Your Mother's Son-in-Law, and the 1934 top 10 hit, Riffin' the Scotch. Um, I mean, both of those sound pretty amazing. <laughs> and that's why on this first Do Check Out This Song, both of those songs are on there. Your Mother, Son-in-Law, and Riff and the Scotch. These songs are excellent. I actually didn't come across either of these ones somehow. I'm going to go listen after the show. Oh, they're excellent. They've got that kind of like Ella Fitzgerald, like jazz-like sound to it. She really, they, in, the, in the early days, sounded a lot more like Fitz and... Uh, well, I don't know about her vocal style, but the music certainly well, did. Yeah, I, I, obviously her vocal style was always her own. And actually, her recording Riff and the Scotch sold 5,000 copies. And so by 1935, Billy would end up signing with Brunswick Records. Hell yeah. And this is where she'd team up with another band leader named Teddy Wilson. Couldn't really find much on him, but I guess he did end up writing a bunch of hits. And she would also end up connecting with a jazz saxophone player named Lester Young, who she first met in 1934. And Young actually gave her the nickname Lady Day, which kind of followed her around for the rest of her career. Lady Day? Lady Day. That's that's kind of a cool nickname, actually. Yeah, and she liked the nickname so much, she ended up calling him Prez. Aww. And out of this came a bunch of singles. The notable ones are What a Little Moonlight Can Do, and Miss Brown to you. And that same year, Billy would end up appearing in a movie with Duke Ellington in a film called Symphony in Black. Ooh. Yeah, so her first film appearance. With Duke Ellington, though. With Duke Ellington. That's a cool... Uh, I didn't know Duke Ellington did movies. Isn't he a jazz guy? Yeah. Yeah, how, is he, was he acting, too? I don't know. I never, I, I never did any studying with him, obviously. Well, clearly he is because he's in the movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I guess that was a fairly rhetorical question then. I don't know. Duke Ellington, you're going on a list somewhere. Shh. And this leads me to my second dude check out the song. What a Little Moonlight Can Do and Miss Brown to You. Oh, yeah. And these are more of her, like, real jazzy Ella Fitzgerald type stuff, you know, really awesome stuff. Probably kind of like my favorite era of her stuff, just because I'm I'm really into that jazzy stuff like that. Yeah, no, this is this is honestly some of the the greatest of her work, but at the same time, some of her later work becomes way more infamous, yeah, way more infamous and famous. And honestly, it has its own merits. We'll talk about the merits of it when we get there. But and so in 1937, Holiday started touring with the Count Basie Orchestra. That's spelled B A S I E, and she did that for about a year, and after that, she ended up working with Artie Shaw and his orchestra. And now, this is a big deal, because... Well, Count Basie's huge. Right, but her touring with Artie Shaw is a big deal, 
because it was an all-white group. And she became the first female African-American to work with an all-white orchestra. Oh, shit. Well, that's fucking badass. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Unfortunately, though, the promoters, they objected to Holiday, you know, for her race was a big deal. And then her unique vocal style. But, I mean, it's probably her race. Yes, uh, I hereby uh, summon down from the clouds the asshole spotlight for that jackass. Oh, yeah. And uh, well, I, it, it'll continue. all the jackass promoters who denied her because of her race. Yeah, exactly. So the asshole spotlight is going to rain down on this guy and continue to rain down upon many racist assholes through this entire thing, I guess. And just assholes in general, because it is, after all, the asshole spotlight. Right. Well, and this frustration would eventually end up leading her to quit the band. But she did end up recording two of her most famous songs out of this. The first one is God Bless the Child. And the story behind this is when Holiday's mother ended up becoming a restaurant owner, she refused to give Holiday money. Holiday supposedly stormed out of the restaurant saying, God bless the child that's got his own. And one of the band members heard the words and turned them into a song, and Holiday ended up recording it. This would be Billie Holiday's only million-selling record. This was her number one song. Yeah, this is, a, this is a tune for the ages. It really is. It's honestly overshadowed by another tune that she's way more infamous for that we'll get to shortly. Really next. Very, very shortly then. And so the other famous song she was known for was Strange Fruit. And in Colombia, her recording company at the time was not interested in the song. <laughs> of course they weren't. Well, they weren't. <laughs> yeah, and you know why they weren't either, because... The song is an unabashed protest of the Southern lynching of African-Americans. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Anybody who has heard the song, first of all, let's let's do this. Uh, let's just do check out these two songs just to get this out of the way. All right. I was put, planning that later, but there yeah, we go. But but we're, we're just going to throw I, it out because I have to say, if you're not going to do check out anything else after this episode. Dude, check out Strange Fruit. Dude, check out Strange Fruit. If you have a soul... If you were like, and it's not even about like what it actually ends up being about. Like, uh, well, the song is obviously about it, but listen for the soul that comes out of her oh, vocal rendition of this, this song. This is the most soulful song, like, I think that's ever been recorded. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, the subject matter is highly important and extremely socially impactful, but the, the delivery takes that, that impact that the words would have had and multiplies it by 10, which makes it understandable why a company like Columbia would be like, I don't know if we could take this yeah. amazingly groundbreaking one-of-a-time right. fucking song. <laughs> well, it's probably a bunch of white guys, too, you know, like, ooh, we can't be promoting any racial uh, protests, Yeah, I guess you would call it. I don't know, yeah. Well, in this particular era in human history that we live in now, like I said, this, this show is never supposed to be po political, but we always have to brush upon it because music is a political tool, and it always has been. It's a social tool as much as it is anything else. Yeah, and because Columbia wouldn't want to use it, Holiday ended up going to the Commodore label instead, and Strange Fruit ended up becoming her second biggest hit ever. And because of the controversy, you know, that we've already talked about, some radio stations banned it, which actually helped it become a hit. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's always the negative, uh, uh, what is it, negative press is still press? Any press is good press? Yeah, or however that goes. <laughs> and because of this recording, too, like, the craziest thing happened. 
she would ended up getting a visit from, I guess, the FBI. Like, I guess they were watching her. Now, if you're talking about 1939, I'm pretty sure you're actually talking about the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at oh, the time. Oh, really? Yeah, so to, to set a little precedent, or precedence without going too far about it, we're going to have to kick back just a couple years. Uh, in 1930, the Department of Prohibition was changed to the Department of Narcotics. So it was put in the hands of Harry Anslinger. It's uh, kind of a weird... I think I've heard that name, actually. Have you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know that he's connected with a lot of the, like, prohibition stuff and uh, a lot of interesting historical things okay. that I found connected with his name. Yeah, maybe that's where I've heard it from, from watching some of those prohibition mafia movies. Yes, exactly. Well, this guy go ahead or went ahead and took over this department, and the department was just swollen shut. Like, it was, it was broken down. Nothing was usable. Like, everything sucked. It wasn't employing many people. They weren't actively getting any arrests. It was just a failure of a department. Oh, is this like what the plot of Untouchables is about? <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's not the plot of the Untouchables uh, Though it kind of becomes like a really failed version of it. I'm not going to get too much into this as this guy is one of the proprietors of uh, anti-marijuana uh, like acts against like the uh, jazz community. Asshole spotlight right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this guy is this guy's crazy. I, I Honestly, if you guys are interested in like just history stuff, please check him out as, as much as you want. I'm not going to be able to cover much because this is about the musical history, but I always like to dive a little bit. So we're going to cover just a little bit about this guy and his insanity. Uh, he said a, a bunch of ridiculous things about marijuana. Uh, he said that his uh, in three years that he would get rid of all illegal drugs in the country. Uh, he only had like 30 agents at the time. Oh, wow. So he was successful then. No, There's no, no he, drugs in America. Yeah. <laughs> because of the state of America, that we all know that there is no drugs in America. So, of course, he, he succeeded in his mission. Uh, all hail Ansler. No, I'm, obviously he <laughs> failed. Obviously, because he's a fucking idiot. But uh, he said that... Uh, the re- <laughs> so he said the reason that jazz sounded so discombobulated was be- because the use of marijuana changed the perception of time. Oh, so my God. <laughs> that your brain worked on a different wave so that you could perceive the time signature, the way. So he came up with some like sci-fi, wow. some sci-fi answer for why marijuana was bad. And he's involved in a lot of anti like everything. He was going to eliminate even alcohol at that point. He was still considering was- alcohol, even though prohibition well ended you're talking about the point when he was going after billy yeah definitely by the time he's going after billy or uh if it ended in 33 he actually took control uh like in the early portion or the end portions of prohibition but he he oversaw during the end of it and so even though he had still considered alcohol like an illegal drug at that point uh even after prohibition ended he still considered that as part of what he was just going to wipe right out of the country in three years Boy, he'd hate this podcast. Oh, he would just, he would really hate this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost feel like lighting up a dupe just in his honor, but I'll wait till we're done. Uh, the reality is, uh, though, that we should get on point here. All and, right. And he, he may be crazy and he may do a lot of things, uh, but on top of all, he earns his spot, or asshole spotlight because he is also, guess what? By no surprise to anyone, an extreme fucking racist. Oh, yeah, shocking. He was once quoting to say that I will hire agents, uh, black agents, but they will never be in charge of anybody. Wow. Yeah. And one of the black agents that would actually get that position is is a man named Jimmy Fletcher. This man has been casted in so many lights in so many different inquiries that I'm not going to post my opinion about it. 
some people really feel like that he is like a as far to go as like a race trader to where it's like there's some some very negative views of him all the way up into where he's more like a like almost a good guy because he's like the innocent actor within it and he kind of helps the situation but either way to make it simple this black fella jimmy fletcher was given a very large amount of drugs and what wait yeah. wait wait no 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 so let me finish the the, the bureau, of, bureau of narcotics gave him just a large amount of drugs and gave him by any means necessary to insert himself into uh, essentially the lives of different people. Oh, as like an informant for like a drug dealer? Yeah. Okay, I thought you were talking so about they just gave him like a no. bunch of like pre-acid or something. No, so essentially he's <laughs> no, so he's essentially like a, he's a undercover, but he's Got acting you. as a drug dealer and doing drugs with people actively. Well, while the <laughs> essentially originally Anslinger says, I'm going to take down all of Jazz. And that whole mission fails so bad in those three years when he just fails like super, super bad that his mission singles down not from I'm going to take down all of black jazz musicians who do marijuana all the way down to I'm going to take down one person. And let me guess, that one person Is was it? Billy. Billy Holiday. And so uh, in comes agent, Mr. Fletcher. Uh, he uses his drug connections in which it is quoted that he would do heroin with uh, with like other drug dealers to uh, essentially like prove that he wasn't a cop. That like, sounds like a rough gig. Yeah, so like if you guys have ever seen like the 90s undercover movies, this this dude was doing it way back in the day. He was AKA doing a blow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so yeah, he was doing uh, yeah, in all types of whatever movies, but either way, he's probably doing every type of drug in the world. And eventually he does meet Billy Holiday and they get along really well. Of course they do. Really, really well. Oh. So, though uh, there is no romantic inclination right away, uh, they get along so well that eventually it comes to the point where they, where the Federal Bureau of Narcotics comes to raid Billy Holiday's house. Guess who's there to serve the warrant? Fletcher? Fletcher. Fletcher knocks on the door by himself originally and just says, hey, this is going to happen kind of either way. I can, you know, if, if you just don't do anything crazy, it's not going to be crazy, blah, blah, blah. You know, it probably does whatever the cop talk is. But either way, he's present, serves the warrant. They raid her house to really no avail as they'll kind of harass her on and off for her whole career to, to very little outcome. Uh, yeah, there's a couple instances of that in my research. Yeah, exactly. So it, it will continue on. But it's even said that uh, later that even after the event, she would run into him at a bar. And they would still be friendly to each other. They sat as friends and spoke and talked, even though he was, like, the principal raider. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe Magic Dick? Yeah. Uh, but either way, uh, it would continue on to be much more climactic and interesting than I'm going to be able to portray in our small 45 minutes. But uh, the love story portion is just to cover the folklore. Right. That by the end of it, Mr. Fletcher falls in love with Billie Holiday. Hmm. So uh, it's it is quite a really interesting story, and I I think that I wish that it really played to a more direct e like end. It really never did, right? As uh, they nothing really came of it besides you know the fact that we we learned that Billie Holiday could uh, out drink and out out sniff uh, coke most men, and you know <laughs> it was said that if uh, if Billie Holiday called you a motherfucker, it was a term of endearment, huh? Didn't know that, but maybe we should get back to Billy Holiday's bio, right? 
If only I knew motherfucker was a term of endearment, I'd have been going good. Yeah, shut up, motherfucker. <laughs> Ooh. <that's bad>. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get back to Billie Holiday. In 1941, she ended up getting married to someone named James Monroe. And although she was already known to drink, supposedly this is where she started picking up her new husband's habit of smoking opium. Uh-oh. And, of course, the marriage didn't last long. They ended up getting divorced at some point. Number one? Number one. That's quick. And really, all that was left after this marriage was Holiday's substance abuse problem. Oh, fuck. And so over the 40s, Billy would end up recording, like, a bunch of songs, like, Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, My Man, Lover Man, Don't Explain, Good Morning Heartache. And obviously, these songs kind of have kind of a sad tone, a lot of them about, you know, her lovers and stuff like that, because, shocker, everybody she was ever with or married, essentially, accused her for her fame and money. Yeah, well, it it seems to be obviously so common even in the modern day, but God, that's so fucking shitty, dude. Yeah, and here's another thing is this is when she started switching from doing more jazz stuff to start recording ballads. You know, like, it really just sounded like a female crooner if you think about it, you know, like, some of these songs, I'd be like, it would sound right if Frank Sinatra was singing these songs. Yeah, exactly. But honestly, she's so dynamic. She can pull it off anyways. She oh, no, sing, they're great. She can sing literally whatever she wants. I don't give a shit. The, her voice is so unique. And that brings me to another dude. Check out this song. And you got to check out Taint Nobody's Business If I Do and Lover Man. Yeah, those are those are some fucking banging tunes, if you don't mind my nomenclatures. I do, actually. <laughs> And sometime after her marriage, she ended up getting with a trumpeter named Joe Guy. Sounds like the most generic name ever. But this is also rumored to when she started using heroin. I mean, it, like I said, muddy, right? Yeah, it's, well, obviously you'd never get like a, hey, I wrote down the date that I first did heroin right. to make sure that the historians know the day I started heroin. Right, and I guess she started smoking opium with her old husband, so maybe this is when she actually went full-blown heroin. Well, once you start smoking opium, you you might as well just full-on inject it, right? I roll my eyes as I say. I'm sorry my if my sarcasm wasn't thick enough there. Don't do drugs, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Boy, our second episode about don't do heroin. <laughs> Should we just call this episode Don't Do Heroin Part 2? Please don't. I mean, it, Billy Holiday is probably known for much more than that. But seriously, the lesson is drugs are not going to help you in any way, so don't do them. No, drugs will really ruin your life. If you take anything from this podcast, don't fucking do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in October 1945, her mother ended up dying. And Billie Holiday, obviously grieving about this, ended up drinking way more heavily and started using way more drugs. Yeah, that's. This is actually a pretty common thing, like with uh, with addicts who are either are already using or used to use, and then you have like the the heavy death, and suddenly it's down yeah. a slippery slope after that. And you can't figure out how to work your brain without some sort of substance. Yeah, exactly. It's it is really really sad, and you know you have to feel sorry for them, but also at that point you have to you know everybody has their own their own choices, and you react to your life however you react to it. So I'll get off my soapbox, but thank you. <laughs> I'm already taller than you, anyways. <laughs> Ouch! Hit me low, huh, Pat? <laughs> 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 
despite her personal problems, though, Billy, you know, was really a major star in the jazz world. You know, I mean, really just anywhere. She's fucking amazing. Yeah, she would end up appearing in a movie with Louis Armstrong in 1947 in a film called New Orleans. And she didn't have a major role, but Louis Armstrong was one of her idols. So, I mean, that's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, anytime you get star in a movie is awesome. And starring in a movie with one of your music idols, that's triple awesome. And it's quadruple awesome if it's fucking Louis Armstrong. Jesus Christ. Right. But unfortunately, because of her drug use, she kind of had a setback. Yeah. In 1947, she was arrested and convicted for narcotics possession. Oh, Billy. Or should we say, oh, Fletcher. I mean, that that actually might be the same one. I didn't get the date on it because it wasn't part of, like, the, the, the narratives that I read, but I should have actually made I wonder if that is the one. I know. Well, there's several of these, too. So, I mean, maybe he was just kind of following her her whole life. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Like I said, there was multiple interactions, and he did end up, quote-unquote, falling in love. But I, I didn't get any resolution to the story because there wasn't a good one, unfortunately, so... Well, and so because of this conviction, though, she ended up getting one year and one day of jail time, and she ended up going into a federal rehabilitation facility in Alderston, West Virginia, you know, for her drug use, trying to get clean. Yeah, well, I mean, at least she made the right option. But when she did end up getting released, she kind of ended up facing some new challenges. Because of her conviction, she was unable to get the necessary license to play in cabarets and clubs, and... You'll get people back and forth saying, oh, this is because she did drugs and nobody wanted it. But I think the biggest argument is because of her race. And this was their excuse to ban her from those. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back at that point. If you already have like any sort of ne- negative image and then you have like a racial stereotype on top of it, it's it's done, you know. Yeah, and this is probably also with her song Strange Fruit. I mean, because, let's be honest, how many other songs in this era were that, like, blatant about racism issues? How many songs even in this era actually go that far to, like, if you listen to the song itself, it's fairly, I don't want to say gratuitous or grotesque, but it has some very dark images about bulbous eyes and and You really know what she's like. And she makes sure to enunciate every last word in that song, too, yeah, you so you know exactly what it's about. It's not a song you miss the lyrics of because they're going by too fast. And, you know, that's it really shows her strength and that sort of, like, mentality there. It's it's kind of terrifying, like, the how, how striking that, I don't know, it's just such a vocal and visual harmony that goes together, and it really puts together, like, a frightening picture of whatever it may represent. Right. The other thing I was also thinking is how strange is it that you need a license to play in cabarets and clubs? Yeah, I mean, like, that, that is pretty weird. I, I actually did read something about that, that she lost her cabaret license, and it meant the, in any club that sold, served alcohol, you required a cabaret license, which was nearly oh, every okay. club in the world. So that makes sense because she could still perform in concert halls. Yep, anywhere that served alcohol, she, couldn't, she was no longer able to uh, play. And so she ended up meeting a New York club owner named John Levy, and he was able to somehow get her into a club called New York's Club Ebony. So I don't know if they just said fuck it and just did it anyway or what, but she was able to sing there. And Levy would end up becoming her boyfriend and manager, you know, once again, using her image to take her money. But he did end up getting her a show at the Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's something. Carnegie Hall is fucking legendary, so. Yeah, but at what price, really? Yeah. 
Also around this time, she was arrested again for narcotics, but she was acquitted of all the charges. So I don't know, maybe they were just harassing her or something. And by the end of the 40s, her hard living was starting to take a toll on her voice. She continued to tour and record in the 50s, but you could tell that she just couldn't sing like she used to. She wasn't able to belt it out. I'm guessing her voice started getting raspy from the way from the way I read everything, you know. I mean, her voice was always kind of raspy anyway, so I could see it just getting worse and worse. I mean, it was it was dark, but I don't know about raspy. I imagine it just took on that like maybe not quite lemmy tone, but it, you know, it well, was getting I would there. assume all the baby doll portions of it fell out and all the the like heavy dark portions stayed in, which was right. really, you know, the baby doll portions are kind of what makes it I don't know interesting and and like beautiful versus you know if you just have a raspy female it almost comes like witchy almost across or something like that yeah and she would end up recording in 1952 nothing real notable and in 1954 she would end up doing like a really successful european tour though so even though her voice is kind of not what it was it sounds like people still wanted to see her and enjoyed it well, it's kind of the way that it goes naturally. Uh, every, like, big music travels outwards across the world, you know, and, I'm, like, ten years later, there's somewhere halfway across the world or three-quarters across the world that's just starting to really like that music, you know what I mean? Yeah. And in 1956, she ended up writing an autobiography called Lady Sings the Blues, and obviously people started to get to know how kind of fucked up her childhood was. And this book would end up being turned into a motion picture starring Diana Ross as Billie Holiday in 1972. Damn, I've never seen that. I wonder if it's good. I bet you it's fucking really good. Well, I mean, it's starring Diana Ross. It can't be bad, right? Yeah, no, I'm putting that on my list. I, and maybe, dude, check out that movie if you got like a few hours and you like stuff like that. And That's not part of the podcast, though. Some of the material in the book, though, might have to be taken with a grain of salt. Holiday was, you know, not in the best of shape on the time when she was working with the ghostwriter, co-author, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah. Was she, uh, she was down on it? Well, I mean, she's probably high on heroin and probably made some stuff up. And she even claimed to have never read the book after it was finished. So who knows how much truth is actually in there? Well, that's fucking ridiculous. Well, I mean, they probably told her she's going to make money off of it and. You know, that's probably all you need, right? Exactly. Especially in that state of addiction. Yeah, exactly. I'll just tell you my story real quick that you give me the money and then we'll be done with each other, right? Yeah, exactly. Just make some stuff up. It's going to sound great. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Moving forward. Yeah, well, around the time of her book, though, too, Billy ended up becoming involved with someone named Louis McKay. And the two were arrested for narcotics in 1956. And so what do you do after you get arrested for narcotics with your boyfriend? Do more narcotics? You get married in Mexico. Oh, okay. That's the other option. Yes. You forgot about that option. Yeah, that's option B. I just went straight for option A. I'm sorry. And of course, you know, like all of her other relationships, he ended up using her, essentially taking more money from her and... Wow, more assholes. We're more just gonna, assholes. We're just gonna Every take no- person she dated is an asshole. Yeah, so we're going to take number one, two, and three now, and we're just going to shuffle them off into the asshole spotlight with the rest of the racist and douchebags of this episode. Honestly, though, we're, let's let's be honest, though. She's all fucked up on drugs. She's standing pretty close to that asshole spotlight herself, so 
That's true, but it also leaves her open to being used yeah, like, by people yeah. already washed in the asshole spotlight. Exactly. <laughs> and despite all the trouble that she's been having with her voice, she did end up managing to give a really impressive performance on the television broadcast, The Sound of Jazz, with Ben Webster, Lester Young, someone she already knows, and Coleman Hawkins. Ooh. That sounds cool. I didn't come across that. I'm going to go listen to that. Is it still available somewhere? I think you can find it on YouTube. All right. I'm going to go take a look after the show. And throughout the 50s, all of her recordings were pretty lackluster. She didn't have any good record sales. But she ended up recording one album in 1958, a record called Lady in Satin with the Ray Ellis Orchestra for Columbia. And although her voice was rough, they could capture, like, some great emotion from these recordings. Nice. So even, even through her raspy voice, she still has what really makes her a great artist. Yeah, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to get enough of that album to throw in and you do check out the songs, but I'm definitely going to be throwing some songs in on our Spotify. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure this list is nice and thick tonight because uh, this, <laughs> Billy's so great. There's so many good songs. She's just, she's amazing. She's a darling. Like, rest of all of the bullshit aside, the, her music that she created is so fantastic, and I am so glad that I got a chance even just to listen to her while I was working. Oh, man. When I heard the song Strange Fruit, it blew my mind. I was like, holy shit. Like, how can someone give so much emotion, and you could just, you could feel the pain of the song, you know, just her singing about the lynchings in the South. It, especially with the problems going on in the world right now, like, this song is fucking, like, just so amazing. Yeah, and I, I I was lucky enough to have a lot of, like, older musicians in my life when I was younger and learning. So I got, like, I, I was exposed to this, like, really early in my life. They were like, hey, this song is, like, really serious. You need to just listen to this song. Right. Like, listen to the song and just see what it is and, and appreciate the art of it. And I, you know, having done that and, like... I already kind of have ingrained in my soul, but if you've never actually listened to the song out there and like, just please take, if you do nothing else, our second dude, check out the song for this song specifically. Yeah, like we've already said it once and we're going to say it again. I don't give a shit what you're doing after you're done. Listen to strange fruit. It's it immediately is, after this episode yeah, is over. Yeah. That is an order. <laughs> that's, that's an order from your captain, dude. You have to listen to this song. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, there's no other option but listen to this song. And, you know, I, we really don't rave like this very often, but it is honestly deserved in this for, in this particular moment. Well, and what's crazy to me is I'd never heard this song before this episode, and it blew my fucking mind. Because I, like... Really? Yeah, because my background's especially with this older stuff, it's all blues and, like, yeah. bluegrass type stuff. Oh, well, that that's really interesting that you had never listened. So, I mean, I bet you that was heavy that first time you listened to it then, wasn't it? Yeah, I stopped doing my research. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait a second, holy shit, this song. I stopped doing my research, said it all the way back to the beginning of the song, and I'm like, nope, we're sitting down listening to this song. Yeah, that's, I knew that when you sent it to me that you were like, yes. I just didn't know that it was your first time hearing it because when me and Ian are doing our research during the week, we send each other like whatever songs we find or whatever interesting little pieces we do. And uh, this particular was the, the main and only thing that showed up. And it was, like I said, the only thing that really needs to be looked at. Yeah, if... With all due respect to the rest of Billy's, like, catalogs. Yeah, exactly, amazing. but, like, 
if this was like the only song she recorded, she should be broadcasted throughout history for the rest of human existence. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it is truly fantastic. And we'll stop raving about the same song over and over again. No, as we long won't. as you guys go <laughs> listen. <laughs> and so back to Holiday's Live. On May 25th, 1959, she ended up giving her final performance in New York City. May 25th? May 25th, 1959. That's my mom's birthday. Oh, really? Yep. Well, not the year, but the the day. (laughs) But not long after this event, Billy was admitted to the hospital for heart and liver problems. Oh. In fact, when she was admitted, she was so addicted to heroin at this point, she was even arrested for possession while in her hospital bed. (laughs) Oh, jeez. That is sad. And that also marked the end of her career, pretty much. Well, on July 17th, 1959, at the age of 44, Billie Holiday ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver in the hospital in New York City. Yeah, I guess it marked more than the end of her career then. That is (laughs) cirrhosis of the liver, huh? From all her years of drinking and heroin. Yeah, I mean, I had multiple accounts in multiple places where my research er intertwined with hers, and every time it was uh, that she drank like a sailor constantly, so... Yeah, well, I mean, if you live that childhood, can you really blame her? (laughs) I mean, maybe there's a more positive output towards that negative energy, but man, it would be hard to avoid that kind of stuff. And I think, honestly, like, it's so hard... Before we get into any of the deeper stuff, I I, I believe that's the end of the chronology. Are we? Uh, and we now I got under- I got her burial and stuff. Oh, okay, well, well, let's finish up there and we'll step in the last thoughts, and then we'll we'll actually uh, we'll talk more about that. And on July twenty first, nineteen fifty nine, at the Saint Paul Apostle Roman Catholic Church, Billy Holiday's funeral was visited by three thousand people just turning out to say goodbye to her. Sweet God, 3,000 people at a funeral is insane. Yeah, especially for this time, too. I mean, there wasn't any real means of communication and getting the word out, you know? It's not like when Michael Jackson died when everybody knew about it. Yeah, no, exactly, because you have to, I don't know, larger transportation and communication really limits the amount of space you can cover with all of that information and travel by the time that the like it comes up. But 3,000 people in this year is just an insane amount. Right, and there was even, you know, like, who would be considered jazz greats at this point. Benny Goodman, who she worked with, Gene Krupa, Tony Scott, Buddy Rogers, and even John Hammond, who she worked with, too. She ended up getting buried in St. Raymond New Cemetery in New York, and Billie Holiday was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not until the year 2000. Seems like a really long time to induct her into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that is an extreme fucking amount. But Diana Ross would end up handling the honors for her. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I guess here we uh, we shuffle down and down the street into last thoughts. You know, it's the last thoughts of the last episode of season two. And, you know, you think we would come to something different at this point, but I don't think I'm going to reiterate all the points that I've, uh, you know, come to in the last 16 episodes. You know what I mean? That We've kind of already covered, hey, If you do a lot of drugs, you're an asshole no matter what. Right, and your life's not going to end up in a good way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if guess what? In the the state of doing too much of any one thing, even alcohol is a drug. Anything you do, it can be a drug if you do it too much and without discipline. 
So the reality of the fact is I, I'm going to keep her so barely out of the asshole spotlight because I understand the hard life that lived. And, you know, I have some personal connections with people who actually, like, very kind of mirror this uh, this mentality and how the life played out sort of situation. And so I, I can understand it on a personal level. But at the end of the day, everybody has a choice, and she could have chosen not to do any of that. So just if you're having problems in your life and you think that drinking or smoking or drugging it up or being, you know, tripping balls or whatever cool uh, meme it may be is the answer to that, it's probably not. Yeah, please don't do drugs, especially nowadays. There's so much help out there. Take it. Yeah, and so, you know, obviously you've probably heard this message a thousand times, so we're not going to soak it's your ears like with It's probably like the third time we've said it this yeah, season, Yeah, it's the too. third time we've said it this season alone. But it is it is really important because guess what? If you're sitting here listening to us, then you're important to us, and we don't want you to end up like that. So that's why we're passing it down, because we care. Really, if you're going to play music, though, holy shit, learn to project emotion the way that Billie Holiday can. <laughs> If you can project half the emotion she did, you're going to be a megastar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the things that I always had personally was I was able to convey a lot of emotion even when I had, like, limited skill and things like that. But nothing, nothing compared to the level that Billie Holiday really produces. Like, listening to the... I can't even... I can't, like, it's almost like an emotional resonance. Like, there's a chord of how you're, like, well, the emotion you sing in. You know, it's almost a harmony to the music with her. She sings in a tone that fits the chords. She, her emotion matches the, the instrumentation in a way that I have almost never seen since and probably will never see again. You know what I mean? She could really mimic the, if you had a specific minor mode that had a certain emotion attached to it, she would go to that emotion to sing to it. You can really feel her pain in every song that she sings. Yeah, and, like you know, we've, we've raved and raved and raved about Strange Fruit, but it's not just limited to that. Even her, her happier tunes, if you listen to her early years and stuff, still have that slight twang to where you get the, the actual emotion off of it. Yeah, honestly, like, I don't think I've ever heard a singer who could really give you her emotions only by the sound of her voice. Despite what she's singing about, which is also sad a lot of the times, too, you really can catch the mood she's in, the way she's feeling at that time when she's singing that song. Yeah, if you didn't speak English, you would still feel the emotion of the entire song right across with the whole the whole composition. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be straight up right now as we uh, end the last thoughts, and we're going to take the last few minutes here to, uh, to exit the the world of Billie Holiday and go back into the world of dude, check out this song. Is this strange fruit again? <laughs> Listen to strange fruit. No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Please do. But I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, thanks everyone for uh, anybody who has spent any time to support us. Uh, though right now we are recording the last episode of season two. Uh, we are like pretty far ahead releasing, you know, we're, we're getting into the point where you guys are listening to the end of the first season slash beginning of the, the second season and starting to get comfortable as we're starting to get comfortable. And I'm here to tell you from the future, things are looking good in front. Uh, next season, we are going to start talking about the birth of a genre of music that is very important to not only both of us, but probably a lot of you. The entire world, really, when it comes to music, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, let's be honest. The, the, the next thing that we begin talking about is more important than 
any other musical revolution that I'm aware of. Uh, though, obviously, that's kind of uh, generationally inspired, yeah. the fact that I'm aware of it. You know what I mean? But, and we might sprinkle a few of our favorite artists in between there who don't quite follow this revolution, but still change music in a great way. Yeah, because we really don't care, and that's just the way it is. So, well, though we have a theme, we don't promise we'll stick to it. So next season, with the season three of Do Check Out This Song, we will be exploring the very, very roots and introduction of rock and roll. We won't get to rock and roll third season, I, I so don't get too antsy yet, but there's about 10 years of interesting things that happen leading up to rock and roll and these very interesting artists that lead to the production. And there's more than enough stuff for us to talk about for a whole season. So I really hope that you all tune in, and I appreciate you guys taking the time to tune in when you have. Have a good night. Have a fantastic evening.